Well, good morning to everybody. It is an honor and a delight to be before you. Um, I'm excited to be here. It's a beautiful day. Excited to be gathered with God's people. Excited to see God's people go down into the water. Uh, it's just a great, great Sunday. So I, I'm excited. I'm also equally excited to preach. And so if you guys can grab your Bibles, we'll jump right into it. Cut out the small talk in the beginning. If you can meet me in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you have your devices. How many people have physical copies of the Bible? Physical copies. Hold them up. Hold them up. Let me see. Okay. It's like four or five. <laughs> you know we a church full of millennials, y'all. Who got the phones? Pull out the phones. This is wild, man. Well, listen, y'all meet me in 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to spend our time. I am grateful to live in a generation that we have the Bible at our fingertips um, no matter what. And so I, I, don't, I don't feel um, we are a little bit more spiritual, those of us who have Bibles. But, you know. <laughs> Well, listen, we're continuing on with our, our First Peter series. We've been going through the entire book of First Peter, entire letter, I should say, of First Peter. And it's been good for us. We haven't skipped anything. And I, I just believe, man, going through a book of the Bible helps us not to be selective in our teaching, but it helps us to actually walk through what the word of God has to say. This is what, and don't turn to it, but this is what Paul said when he stood before the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said, for I didn't shrink away from declaring to you the entire counsel of God. And one of the things that happens when we go through all of what the Bible has to say, particularly all of what a book has to say, it does afford us the opportunity not to skip anything. And I promise you, if I could, there are some things I would have skipped in this letter already. Um, but nevertheless, uh, one of the things worse than bad theological teaching is selective teaching. Just because the scriptures command us and Jesus commanded in the Great Commission, teach them to observe. And then he says, all that I have commanded, not some, not portions, not parts. So we just feel more, most comfortable in a book of the Bible. So we are in the book of First Peter. Before I jump in, let me quickly give you guys an update. Last week, I asked you guys to I told you guys I presented a need to you that we needed help with pulling off some of our summer outreaches. And so. In a couple of weeks, you saw that we're doing VBS. At the end of August, August 26th, I think it is, we're doing a huge, I, I keep calling it a block party. It's not a block party. It's a park party. So we're, we'll be at a park down the street, and we have the whole spot to ourselves. And we're, it's a way that we can, it's not a church picnic. It is in a sense, but it is a way that we are going to love on the community. And so we're going to have a lot of things going on, face painting and free haircuts. We just found out that we're going to have anybody, any kids that are going back to school, if they bring their physicals, we'll have a doctor ready to fill out those physicals, do the physicals right there, right on site. And so if you guys got kids, bring those. Bring, I'm bringing my kids physicals. Uh, and, and so you guys bring those physicals and we'll have uh, a doctor and we have doctors in training and they're all a part of our church. That's the beauty. Like we're not going out to say, can a doctor come in? We have a doctor right here in our church. And so uh, I'm excited about that. Nikisha, are you here, Nikisha? She's not here. She's probably performing surgery. You know, I had to make that sound real deep. <laughs> She's probably home in the bed like <laughs> She's going to kill me for saying that. I'm just kidding. All right. Anyway, but we I wanted to give you guys an update. So I asked you guys to give towards those two outreaches. And I told you what the cost would be. So I said for the next in the next two to three weeks, when VBS starts, we need to have raised two thousand dollars to pull off our VBS. We're literally asking you to bring your kids, drop them off from nine to three. 
Drop them off. You can go do whatever you want, do laundry, have a date day, whatever you want to do, you can do it. Uh, and we'll take care of your kids. We're going to provide breakfast. We're going to provide lunch. We're going to do activities. We're going to have them out. We're just going to do a lot of things with them that week. Uh, and so to pull that off, it's going to cost us $2,000. You guys so far have raised $720, just so you know. So amen. We have two more weeks, so my, my hope and prayer is that you guys will continue to be generous as you are and continue to give towards the work of the Lord. As I said to you last week, none of it goes to me. It goes in, and then it goes right back out. And uh, it, even after the two weeks, we're still raising because we need to raise 6500 for the budget that we've put together for the park party. And so we're asking that you guys will continue to be generous and continue to be sacrificial in your giving. What I failed to mention last week was that there is a link. If you go onto our website or you go onto the, uh, the app, there's a link when you hit the give that gives a drop down just so we can track. We have two separate links in there now that say uh, VBS and one says Summer Park Party. And so you can give to either one of those and those will help to uh, continue the work of the Lord. All right. We are in 1 Peter 3. We've been going through this thing, and we ended last week uh, at verse number 7. So now we're in verse number 8. Why don't you guys pick me up in verse number 8. It says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, you should circle this word, bless. For to this you were called, so that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and keep his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and to do good. I'm sorry, and to, and to do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I simply want to preach today from the topic entitled Attractive Lives. Attractive Lives. Let us pray. Father, we come to you as we do every single week uh, in desperate need of you. I need you to proclaim your word. Uh, those who are all here under the sound of my voice need you so that their ears can be opened we all have spiritual earwax if you don't remove it out. So, Father, I pray that there would be no hindrance to your word. Psalms 119.105 says, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The reality is, Father, outside of your word, we are in a dark place and don't know which direction to go. But we thank you that your word helps us to navigate through life spiritually, naturally, physically. It helps us to endure. And I pray that today the word would fall on good ground. Pray that the word would fall on believers and non-believers. We both need the word today. So I pray that Christ would be glorified, that Christ would be seen. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Shut my mouth if I preach not the gospel. Pray that Jesus Christ is glorified in our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Attractive lives is what we're going to talk about today. In the, the early to the mid-1700s, uh, Benjamin Franklin, I don't know if you guys know this, but he wrote a yearly almanac. It's called Poor Richard's Almanac, where he would disguise himself as, in this almanac, he would disguise himself as a fictitious person and called Richard. And as he was doing it, he would just, I mean, he would attack different subjects within the early 1700s to the mid-1700s. And in the almanac, you'd find things like seasonal weather forecasts. 
You'd find things like practical household hints. There'll be puzzles within this almanac. You'd even find very, very thought-provoking quotes. One of the quotes that I found in one of his almanacs, particularly the edition that was written in 1744, he wrote an edition, or a quote within that edition that literally said, a spoonful of honey will catch more flies than a gallon of vinegar. Now, you may be scratching your head saying, what in the world is he talking about? Why do I even want to catch flies? What does he mean by a, a spoonful of honey will catch more flies than vinegar? And more importantly, what does that have to do with the text? Everything to do with the text. The reason it has a lot to do with the text is because behind the meaning of what Benjamin Franklin is saying is you, at a, with a sweeter and a nicer approach, you can be more successful at winning people than if you have a mean and nasty attitude. That's basically what he's talking about. And I don't know if you guys have picked this up, but since chapter 2, verse 13, when we were in chapter 2, since then, he has been hammering away at our conduct. Remember, he talked about our conduct submitting to the emperor. He talked about submitting to uh, the government. He talked about submitting to our unjust bosses. He talked about submitting last week. He talked about submitting to an unbelieving husband. And what he's been hammering away at over the last few weeks is what does it look like to win somebody else by a pure conduct? And so that's exactly what Benjamin Franklin was talking about. How do we attract flies in here? We do it by being nice and sweet. We do it by, by catching them with honey, not by catching them with vinegar, and many of us, you know, y'all are New Yorkers, so we, we, stay all, we stay ready with an attitude. But the reality is Peter pushes against that cultural norm. He says, how do you win people? At the focus of what Peter is getting at is, how do you win your non-believing friends? How do you win your non-believing boss? How do you win your non-believing husband is what he talked about last week. He's going to conclude our time today. And so that's at the beginning of our text, he's concluding that thought. You got to remember, this is a letter. So in a letter, he's just, this, he's just writing. We break it up because we don't have time to sit there and go through too much at one time. But he's concluding his thought that he started in chapter 2, verse 13. Why don't you pick me back up in verse 8? It says, finally, that's important. That lets us know he's concluding that thought. Finally, all of you having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Let me lift up one part of that. Finally, all of you having unity of mind. Remember, he has challenged us on our relationships. He's not just relationships. He's challenged us on our relationships in society. Remember, he talked about government. Challenged our relationships in the workplace. I don't know how y'all are in the workplace. Many people are different at church than they are in the workplace. He's challenged us on that. And then he challenged us last week on our relationships, husbands and wives. Here's what he hasn't challenged us on yet. He has not challenged us on our relationship in the church. How do we operate? So we know how to operate now in society. We know how to operate now when it comes to work. We know how to operate within our marriage. How do you operate in church is what he is getting at today. Why? Because he's writing this letter to believers and he's saying, finally, all of you, he's talking about the conduct of the church, not just the conduct that you are when you are out in the world, but how do you behave and how do you act and how do you interact? How do you not push evil on someone that's pushing evil on you? How do you do that within the church? And it's easier for non-believers. Well, it's easy for non-believers to see your conduct in society. 
It's easy for believers, non-believers to see your conduct at work. It's easy for non-believers to look into your marriages and see your conduct within your marriage. But I would go so far as to say it's equally just as easy for the world to look into the church and see if we're genuine. They can look into the church to see if we are authentic with what we're pushing out this thing called religion and called Christianity. They can sift through that stuff and see it. Question is, how are you attracting flies? It's the question on the table today. Tertullian wrote in the second century, Tertullian wrote about how the Roman government was so afraid and so amazed at how fast the church was growing, growing in Rome that they literally sent spies into the church. And they sent spies into to the church so that the spies can come back and bring a report. What are they doing? How are they growing? What is happening inside of those buildings? Here's the report that came back. These Christians were very strange people. They meet in an empty room with no images. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent, but they seem to be expecting him at any moment. And my, how they love him and love one another. If spies came into Epiphany Church from an atheistic government, would the same verdict be said here? If spies of non-believers came into the church, would they walk away and say, I don't see an image of Jesus. They worship this guy. He's not there. Man, they love him and they love each other. Would that be said of us? That's said of the Roman church back in the second century. And so what, what Peter is going to do well this morning is he's going to attack what does love look like? Don't miss it. The entire passage is about love. In fact, I would go so far as to say over the last few passages, he's been talking about love. And we'll conclude our time by talking about that. How do we love one another in the church? Now, Peter's going to give us five ways. He's going to start our time at least by giving us five ways in verse number eight of how we are to love each other. Basically, he's really going to show us how do you attract flies? Here's how you do it. Verse eight. Finally, all of you having unity of mind. He starts with saying, be unified in your thinking. Let me define what unity of mind is by telling you what it's not. Unity of mind does not mean we're clones. Unity of mind does not think we can't have opposing uh, positions. We do not have to have to have the very same identical conclusion to everything. You do not have to think like I think in order for, for us to be unified in our thinking. However, even though we have opposite thinking on non-essential issues, the issues, the core convictions we agree on. What's the core conviction? The nature of God. The, the fallenness of human of humanity, the very gospel. We have to be unified on the gospel. Half of us can't believe that you earn salvation and the other half believe that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. No, we're unified on the work of Jesus Christ, but we can differ. And so being unified in mind doesn't mean that we're clones. It doesn't mean that we think alike. In fact, the New Testament is full of examples, full of them, of Believers, even the church, bunning heads and having division on certain things that were non-essential. Let me prove it to you. Meat sacrifices to idols. The church often argued about that. Keeping the Sabbath was argued about. What days are appropriate to worship was argued about. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15 literally split ways. Stop talking because of a division. 
The disciples often argued over who would be the greatest in heaven. And so, yes, the New Testament is full of disagreements. But even though the New Testament is full of disagreements, the church continued to prevail because the focus was on Jesus. The focus. Now, I'm not pushing these divisions saying, listen, y'all just start arguing in here over non-essential stuff. I think we should try our best to be unified. But unity of mind, if unity of mind means that we have to think alike, that's a cult. Cults often say everybody has to think this way. And it's typically whatever the leader says is what everybody is supposed to think. That's a cult. And Peter's not pushing a cult to us. He's saying you can be divided on some areas. But when it comes to the core convictions, this is what this is the best way to define unity of mind. Cooperation in the midst of diversity. It's the best way to define it. Like if you saw the worship team this morning, they're very diverse. And I'm not talking ethnic ethnicity. Uh, ethnicity. I'm talking, they were diverse in gifting and ability. You saw Chris on the organ. You saw uh, my brother on the keyboard. You saw Jake on the bass and Janae was on the drums. You didn't see them arguing. Janae wasn't saying to Jake, I want to play the bass today. He was saying, I want to play the drums today. I, I think Janae would take Jake. I'm just, you know, just saying. <laughs> But even the singers, they have sopranos, they have altos, they have tenors, and then Tashina's leading. And so they are very diverse. Here's what you didn't see. You didn't see them two, singing two songs. They sang the same song at the same time. The band wasn't playing Christ alone, and, and the singers were singing Be Exalted. They were unified. However, they were unified and cooperating, but they still were diverse. That is what the church should look like. We should offer different opinions to sharpen one another, but we can't offer different opinions when it comes to the gospel. We have to be unified on one central message. And so Peter says, listen, you guys want to be unified? Be unified in your thinking. But he didn't just stop with our thinking. He moves to our feelings as well. Look back at the text. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Look at this word. And sympathy, if you have a different translation, it might say compassion. In fact, the, the original language is, the, the word is sympathé. It's where we get our word sympathy. And so what Peter is showing us is, Peter is showing us that it's important for us to be, yes, unified in our, in our, our thinking, in our minds, but also be unified in sympathy. Be unified in what we feel. Let me put some Bible there. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep, which is interesting because it's often easier for us to weep or mourn with those who mourn just because something you'd have to be an evil person to laugh when someone is deeply mourning. So it's a little easier for us to mourn. I would I would bet, especially with young millennials, it's hard for us to rejoice with someone else that to re, that rejoices because we often think that we should be that person that everyone else is rejoicing over. Peter says, I mean, but Paul says, no. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 says this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The idea is for us to feel the same thing. That is what a body is. Like when your toe hurts, I don't know about you. If I stub my toe, I feel it in my back. I feel it in my neck. Like everything hurts. That is how we should be when it comes to the church. Be unified in our thinking. Unified in what we feel. And then he moves on. Keep looking. Verse number eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy. I love this one. I actually don't. Brotherly love. Let me tell you why I don't. I grew up with two brothers, older brothers, and I'm the youngest. 
and they tortured me. When I read this, have brotherly love, there was nothing in me that rejoiced. Like, I didn't run around that day. I was just sitting there like, ah, I don't know if I understand brotherly love. I mean, my older brother literally would take me by my feet and he would hang me over the banister when my parents left. Literally, I mean, he would, they would chase me around the house with, they were cold, but I thought they were hot curling irons and hot irons and chase me around the house and literally get me into a corner and I would, free, I would spaz out. To this day, I cannot play games with curling irons and when Ty plugs those in, I go in another room. I'm so serious. I got some serious trauma. So when I think of brotherly love, there's nothing in me that's like, I, I rejoice. But what we should, even though we can't, even though I can't rejoice, doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue what brotherly love is. We should all love one another as family is what it's saying. That's what it's really getting at. And, and I'm sure when Peter had this on his mind, when he put his pen to the paper to write this epistle, I'm almost certain that Peter had his brother on his mind. Peter's brother was Andrew. And Andrew was a good brother, so good that he actually led Peter to Jesus. Read John chapter 4. Andrew met Jesus first, and then what happens? I mean, John chapter 1. Andrew met Jesus first, and then what happens? He goes and gets Peter. This is what it says in John chapter 1, verse 41. Andrew found his own brother Simon, that's Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is how we should look when it comes to brotherly love. We should always be leading our brothers and our sisters to Jesus. That is what Peter would have had in mind when he put his pen to the paper to write this. And so he says, listen, be unified in your thinking, be unified in your feeling, but also have brotherly love, love one another like family. And here's what I know about family. Family argues. Loving, bro loving, having brotherly love does not mean that you will not argue. It does not mean you will not have disagreements. It does not mean that you will not have tit for tat with one another. But at the end of the day, when it comes to your sibling, you can argue with them, but nobody else better not talk about them. Brotherly love is what he is pushing to us. He's pushing to have genuine affections for one another. We cannot be a church that loves in your face and then walks out and talks about you. Peter pushes against that. He says, don't be two-faced, have brotherly love. Love one another, but he doesn't end there. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart. Now this one's a little comical. The reason this one is a little comical is because New Testament was written in a language called Greek, and whenever you look up the intended meaning of a tender heart, I kid you not, I'm not making this up, you can Google it. It literally means have good bowels. Your intestines is what it's referring to. Because in ancient times, they believed that the deepest set of emotions, they, they resided right in your stomach. And in some ways, we believe that too, although our English language translated it to tender heart because we nowadays believe that your affections are in your heart. Back in the day, it was in your gut. Which is why we say things like, what is your gut telling you? Or if I called one of you up here and put you on the spot and gave you the mic and said, man, just tell us who you are. Tell us, you know, about your family. Tell us what you do. Five minutes, just talk. Some of you would be extremely nervous. And that nervousness is usually accompanied with butterflies. Where do you feel butterflies? In your stomach. And some of you would be so nervous that you would feel nauseated in your stomach. Try that with food. Go without eating. 
I don't know about you, but I get irritable when I don't eat. I get angry. I get short. I do not want to talk with people. I want to get to some food. It's almost like that Snickers commercial. Y'all remember that Snickers commercial? <laughs> Betty White, 95 years old, playing football. And she runs across the middle and catches a pass and gets smashed in the mud. She comes back to the huddle, and the guys are like, Mike, what's wrong? And it's Betty White, and they're like, Mike, what's wrong? And then a girl runs on the field and gives him the Snickers, and he turns back into a man. He literally wasn't feeling like himself because he did not eat. That is what I, I feel like a 95-year-old white woman when I don't eat. That's what I feel like. I'm, I mean, I'm irritable. He says, be tenderhearted. He's talking about compassion. Now, keep in mind, he's already talked about compassion. He's talking about sympathy, remember? Now he's talking again about compassion. He's driving home a point. He's saying, have compassion for one another. And I don't, you know, I, I don't know how, how I, I'm not usually in here when our hospitality is greeting you. I'm not usually in here when the security is out here greeting you. But my hope, my deepest hope is that you are greeted with a smile because what can happen after a while when we see people coming in, it's easy for us, especially if we're doing hospitality, to look at people and say, there's another issue. There's a person with another problem. Let me not engage them. What if I did that? What if I was a pastor that did not, was not tenderhearted and said, there's another death. There's another divorce. There's another marital problem. I don't feel like doing. We have to be a church that is surrounded by tender heart. I want to be a church that literally has good bowels. That's what the text says. He says, be a people that love one another deeply, so much so that you feel it. That's what really compassion and tender heart is, is your hurt and my heart. I should feel what you feel. When you're hurting, I should feel it. When you're rejoicing, I should rejoice. And it should be vice versa. And so he says to us, he's given us four so far. Be unified in your thinking. Have sympathy. Brotherly love. Tender heart. And a humble mind. This is interesting that he now says have a, have a humble mind. Why is that interesting? Because having humility during the first century, especially under the intense persecution they're under, that's not a virtue. That's a liability. Like you can't be, a, that culture at that time was kill or be killed. But Peter is pushing against the norm and saying, no, 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 no. You, that, you're not going to have that attitude. As Christians, as people of God, we don't do that. No, you know what we do? We stay humble. And you're not humble because you say you're humble. In fact, saying I'm humble is actually pride. Like anybody that says, I'm so humble. That's not humility. Humility is always best seen and not heard. We should see your humility. We shouldn't hear you saying you're humble. Because the moment you say you're humble, I'm saying, Dad, that person's so prideful. But he says, no, be humble, not just humble, humble in your mind, humble in your thinking. Don't think more of yourself than you ought to. Y'all know, like, y'all not that dude. I, I just want to put you, I'm going to put you on blast. You are not that dude. Jesus is that dude. And so all of us in this room should be humble. Nobody in here should feel like I made it. None of us should have that attitude. Now, he, he's addressed to us in verse 8. He's addressed how to have relationships when things are going well. Here's the question. How do we have relationships when things aren't going well within the body? Verse 9 is going to address it. Look at verse 9. Y'all okay? Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, 
that you may obtain a blessing. Here's what we don't know about the text before us. We do not know if Peter is talking to believers and believers. I think he is. Just to keep in context with where we are, I think he's talking to believers and believers. However, he could be addressing relationships with believers and non-believers. But here's the point. Either way, it's the same principle. The same principle is we do not do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No, we actually bless the one that's doing us wrong. If anybody ever asks you what separates Christianity from all other religions, you know what separates us? That we love our enemies. You know what separates us? That we love the people that do us wrong, that we are quick to forgive. That doesn't, and just so you know, quick to forgive doesn't mean that you sweep under the rug what they did. No, you should address issues. But at the same time, we should be quick to forgive people. And so Peter is saying, listen, when people do evil towards you, you don't have to do evil back to them. Now, I'm sure this is a learning process for Peter because this is the same Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like he didn't apply this verse in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was in the garden and the Roman soldiers came up and he chopped the dude's ear off, which, by the way, I doubt if he was aiming for his ear, he probably was trying to kill him. So he wasn't applying this verse. He didn't sit back and say, oh, evil for evil. Let me not do that. He quickly pulled out a sword. But even Jesus pushes back against him. As soon as he does it, what does Jesus say? No, no, put the sword away. For those who live by the sword, die by the sword. Really what Jesus was saying was that Christianity is best won not by fighting, but by dying. So he's saying, listen, put that away. Do not revile. Do not do evil because someone else is doing evil towards you. On the contrary, one word, bless. This is so interesting. He tells him to bless the person that's doing wrong to him. Now, let me get real practical. This is hard. This is easy to preach, easy to read, hard to apply. Let's be honest. Like you have people in your life, like think of that one person that has done you wrong. There is nothing in you that's going, I don't want to do evil back to that person. No, you want to do evil back to that person. But Peter is showing us that we shouldn't do evil. Not only that, it's not even that he's saying, just forgive him and walk away. No, bless him. The easiest way to bless somebody that's doing you wrong, I found, is to simply pray for him. I mean, you can do more, but if you're not at the point where you can actually do action, you simply should pray for that person. And I've learned that over time, praying for someone who, who has done you wrong somehow changes your heart about the situation. Somehow changes your heart about that person. And I'm not talking about pray those kill them, Lord, prayers. <laughs> Yo, there's, there's a verse in Psalm, in Psalm 58, verse 6. I kid you not. David says, break their teeth in their mouth. Like, I underlined that. I drew a line out, put facts. Like, I was, I memorized that one. I quoted it to myself like, mm, break their teeth in their mouth. So I'm not saying do the kill them, Lord, prayers. I'm saying genuinely pray a blessing over that person. Pray in a way that changes your heart toward that person. So, Jesus, so Peter is challenging them. Now, I know you're like Exodus 21 says differently. Exodus 21 says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It goes on to say foot for a foot, hand for a hand. It just it goes down the list. But doesn't Jesus push back on that in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Then Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one that is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek for him to have as well. 
And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, this is crazy, go two with them. And so Jesus is affirming exactly what Peter is saying. Do not do evil towards the person that is doing evil towards you. And yes, the law of retribution might be a good guide for our penal system, but it is not a good guide for how we interact in church. A good guide for us in church is forgive, is not to do evil. A good guide for us in church is to not revile the one that is reviling us. And even this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, like you do realize that was given so that it limits the revenge that we have on a person. Like, because be honest, when someone plucks out your eye, you don't want one eye. You want two. So the Bible restrains us and says, don't take two. Just take one. You, if someone cuts off your hand, you want to cut off both of their hands. Someone cuts off your foot, you want both of their feet. Someone knocks a tooth out, you want a whole row. Touch your neighbor and say, dentures. That's what you want. You want their teeth completely knocked out of their mouth. And so the Bible restrains us and says, no, 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 no. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Just one tooth. No, not the whole row. Foot for foot, hand for hand. It restrains us. And so, listen, Peter is like, listen, this is very practical. Bless that person. Best way to do it. Start by praying for that person. Today, you should leave here, write that person's name down, and, and just commit to praying for them all week. You ain't got to call them yet. Get your heart right, because if you call them right now, it might not go well. See, y'all like, y'all got some issues. I can see it. Y'all like, <laughs> y'all got, especially over here, I felt something over here. Listen, you don't have to call that person just yet. Start out by praying for that person and genuinely seeking. Like you should want their, their, their care so much, their, their well-being so much that you turn that anger towards an upward petition to the Lord. Pray for that person. So the Bible says it. It says, listen, don't repay evil for evil and reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. When you bless somebody else, you then in turn Get a blessing. It's a blessing to be able to bless somebody else back. All right, verse number 10. Verse number 10 says this, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking evil, from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from his evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against the one who is doing evil. I don't know if you guys have picked this up, but over the last few chapters, Peter has been so, so passionate about the word of God. Have you picked that up so far? I mean, so far, he's quoted Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. He's quoted Isaiah chapter 40. He's quoted Psalm chapter 34. He's quoted the Old Testament last week, when he wanted to give us a sufficient example, because someone get gave for that? It's starting to make a noise. When he, wanted to, when he wanted to give us a sufficient example of a godly woman, he went into the Old Testament and pulled out Sarah. And so Peter is one of the most biblically faithful people. Like over and over again, once again in Psalm, in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he now once again quotes the Old Testament. Now he is quoting Psalm chapter 34, which is crazy because he's already quoted it once. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get to the place where our first reaction in any situation 
was to run to the Bible and the scriptures rather than run to our friends for all types of advice and counsel. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get to the place that there was not a day that went past that we were in the word of God? I mean, we spend so much time on so many other things. We spend time on watching Netflix, watching TV shows. We certainly spend too much time on social media. Like, just imagine, you don't have to say it, but imagine that you've spent the same amount of time just this past week on, in your word that you did on social media. The time that you spent Snapchatting and Facebook Live and filtering your picture before you, if you just spent the time you spent filtering the picture before you post it, you spent that time in the word of God. Peter is faithful to the word of God. And so once again, he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 34 when he digs into the, the, the meat of their issues. In verse number 10, he says this, for whoever desires to love life, and see good days. I think all of us in this room would say we desire to love life and see good days. Peter gives us the recipe how to do it. He says, you want to know how to really love life? And love life and having good days, let's define good. This doesn't mean that you are living a life full of abundance and prosperity. That doesn't mean you're loving life. Because I know people that are filthy rich right now that need counseling. People that are filthy rich that need therapy. And so he's not pushing a prosperity theology. What he is pushing is saying, you want to enjoy life and you want to have good days. You live at peace with everybody else. And the older I get, the more I want peace. I just don't got time to be hating with people. I don't got time to be arguing. I'm not looking for arguments. I'm looking for peace. And what Peter is saying is, listen, you want good days and all of us want it. You know how I know all of us want good days? Because when you leave here today, you're going to say, have a good day. We all desire deep in our hearts to have good days. Peter gives us the recipe on how to have good days. Love people. Love people. Love your neighbor. Love your sisters. Love your brother. If you see an issue, address it and move on. And so Peter is like, listen, you can have good days. You can have good li a good life, which is crazy because they're under intense persecution. Like the people that he's writing this to are being beheaded. The people that he's writing this to are being crucified on a cross. Yet he writes to them and says, you still can have good life. Your short time here on earth, you can enjoy it. How do you do it? Love people. Stop hating people, but actually genuinely love them. Now, Peter is over and over again. He's written it with a literary term that I've told you guys about, a chiastic structure. Anybody remembers that? In the chiastic structure, Peter has been very clear that he'll give two or three different thoughts within one verse. And when he gives two or three thoughts within the verse, in order for us to understand the focus of what he's saying, we must look at the structure. Stay with me. I told you guys, if he gives us thought A, and he gives us thought B, and then he gives us thought B, and then he gives us thought A, which one is the prevailing thought? Thought B, I'm so proud of y'all. Thought B is the prevailing thought. Well, he gives us another chiastic structure here in, actually in, in, in verse number eight. Let me show it to you real quick. In verse number eight, he says, finally, all of you, well, here's the chiastic structure. He lists out five things, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. In order for us to understand not just the focus of that verse, but really the focus of most of what he's written so far, we have to look at the structure. In that text, he gives us three different thoughts. He gives us thought A, he gives us thought B, 
he gives us thought C, then he gives us B and A again. Let me just show you it real quick. Paid a lot for that degree that I got, so I got to <laughs> look at what he says. He says, have unity of mind. Now look at the end of that verse. Have a humble mind. Mind is the focus of what he's saying. So two times he talks about the mind. Now keep back in that verse. Look at what he says after unity of mind. Have sympathy. And then he says, have a tender heart. Both are connected by having compassion. That's one thought. Then he gives us smack dead in the middle, brotherly love. So here's the chiastic structure. You have mind is a book in. You have compassion. And then smack dead in the middle is brotherly love. What is Peter's focus? Brotherly love. His focus of what he's not only here, but here's the crazy part. This is his third time giving us this chiasm. And all three times he's giving us the chiasm, he's focused on love in the middle. He did it in, if you're taking notes, he did it in chapter 1, verse 22. He did it in chapter 2, verse 17. Let me just read it really quickly. In chapter 1, verse 22, this is what he says. Have Having purified, so he's talking about purity, your souls for, for obedience to the truth. And then at the end of that, he says, Earn, love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So purity is the thought. And then in the middle, he says what? He says, with a sincere brotherly love, love one another. So it, back in chapter one, he was talking about love. Fast forward to chapter two. In verse number 17, he does the exact same thing again. Verse 17, he says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Remember, he says honor is the book in honor everyone, honor the emperor. And smack dead in the middle, he says, fear God and love the brothers. Remember those spies that came into the church? The thing that they took out was not just that they loved Jesus. Hear me, it's impossible to love Jesus and not love his body. It's impossible to love his body and not love him. You have to love one another. And so the focus of what Peter is giving us is love. It's not compassion. Yes, we should be compassionate. It's not being humble in your thinking. Yes, you should have humility in your thinking. But the focus of what Peter is giving us based on the, the writing literary term of a chiastic structure is love. We should be people that love one another. And the greatest way that we ever saw love displayed was on the cross of Jesus Christ. You want a model of what it looks like to love, not just people that loved you back. Because love in and of itself is selfish. I love you because of the way you make me feel. The cross of Jesus Christ is the one place that we get to see love modeled well. You know why? Because Jesus loved people that did not love him back. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not wait for some future you. He didn't wait for the you that prayed more. He did not wait for the you that, that got it together and, and actually read your Bible. He didn't wait for the you that, that dressed a certain way. You know what he waited for? He waited for you while you were enemy. Basically, you bring nothing to the table of salvation. The only thing that you bring to the table of salvation is the sin that makes salvation even necessary. Jesus Christ loved us while you were an enemy, while you were trifling. Now, I know you're like, I was never an enemy of God. Even when I wasn't a believer, I was a good person. But you being a good person isn't good enough. Why? Because he demands perfection. And so your good is an enemy towards him because he's holy. And so he says, listen. 
I loved you when you couldn't love me back. And so when Peter talks to us this morning about loving our enemies, loving the people that have done us wrong, he's giving us a model of who has done that. Jesus Christ. Everybody in this room has that one person. And I'll end here. You have that one person that you need to forgive. Everybody in this room has that one person that has done you wrong that you, it's easier just to say, I'm not going to talk to that person. But what would it look like to actually commit time praying for them and reach out to them? And this is the easiest way to, 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 to start to get into a place of reconciliation with someone that has done you wrong. Think of what you might have done wrong to them. And even if you didn't do anything wrong, ask them, how can I repent? How can I say I'm sorry? What have I done to you? And if there's nothing there, start the conversation of how they hurt you. Commit it to prayer. Talk to them. Why? Because we have to be a people that love each other. Every head bow, every eye closed. Let's pray. Father, I, I admit that we are selfish in our, in our thinking. We're selfish in our love for one another. We typically only love people that do us right. But Father, you've shown us in your word time and time again how Christ loved us even when we didn't love him. It's been my experience that most people don't like to think of themselves as enemy of you, but we are. The moment we were born, we were born with a beef towards God. And you, Jesus Christ, came in and stepped in and died on our behalf to crush that beef, to crush that issue. And because the gospel is so ferocious after reconciliation, how would it look for us in this room to reconcile to our brother? How would it look for us in this room to reconcile to our sister? Father, help us. It's not easy, Lord. It's not easy when we have done wrong. Some people in this room, I do not want to downplay it. They have legitimate hurts. People have legitimately slandered their name. People have done them wrong. But Lord, help us to forgive. It's nothing more Christ-like than forgiving the person that has done us wrong. I think of Christ on the cross, looking down at the people who are mocking him and spitting on him and pulling out of his beard, punching him in his face, putting a crown of thorns on his head. Yet, in the midst of being done wrong, even though he did nothing wrong, he still had enough in him to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Help us with forgiveness. Help us to attract flies. Help us to have a sweet and nice and forgiving approach to people that have done us wrong. But let us not be passive either, Lord. Give us boldness to actually talk about the issues that people have done against us. Give us boldness, but also give us forgiveness. Give us a kind heart. Because Jesus has done that on our behalf. Father, we submit whatever that issue is, we submit it to you today. We are in bondage if we do not forgive. We're in bondage to the anger. But help us, Lord, to move to a place to where we can reconcile with our brother, reconcile with our sister. Pray that we would do that this week. Holy Spirit, lead that effort. It's in Christ's name. In Christ's name alone, we do pray. Amen.